Um, but this, this morning, we're, we're going to finish our series. We, we have a, a two-week series. We started last week on the office of deacon. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 13, um, and we'll read that in just a, a second. Um, and if you would like to use that, the Pew Bible on the pew back in front of you, that's on page 992. So it'll be 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll read verses um, 8 through 13 in, in just a minute. But uh, just, just to kind of set the stage, uh, as a church, we believe that there are two offices in the church or two positions of leadership within every local church. We believe this is commanded by the New Testament, um, illustrated by the New Testament, and the two offices are that of elder and deacon. So those are the two offices. Uh, elder, sometimes pastor or overseer or bishop. It's all the, the, the terms are used interchangeably in the New Testament, but that's the first office, the shepherding office, the teaching office, the, the spiritual authority office. And then there's deacons, the second office. And, and while both are important, and in fact, both are necessary for a church to function according to God's will for that church, we wanted to focus on the office of deacon. And so we set aside two weeks, last week and this week, to, to establish from the scriptures what the office of deacon is. And so the two questions that we, that we sought to answer, and last week the first question was, what do deacons do, function, what's their function, what do they do? And then this week, who are they? What, what's their character? Who must they be? So those are the two questions. Function, how do they function in life of the church? But, but who are they? What's their character? What, what does the Bible require of the deacon? And so that's the, the, the focus this morning is on character. And as we said last week, the, the office of deacon is, is characterized or defined by the, the word servant. The deacons are servants of the church. They serve the church. That's what they do, and that's who they are. They serve. And so if that's a one-word association that'll help you remember, deacons serve. And specifically, if you weren't here last week, what we said, we looked at the, in, the, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6, and we saw from 6, as it's kind of this, this, this example of the, the proto-deacon in the early church, the three functions that we saw were meeting practical needs, protecting church unity, and supporting the ministry of the elders. So those are the three functions we looked at last week, meeting practical needs, protecting the unity of the church, and supporting the ministry of the elders. And all of that came from Acts 6. You can go back to our website. We have all of our sermons posted. You can listen to that sermon online. And we have a handful of books that are out on these tables. Um, some are smaller. Some are, I think we maybe have some hardbacks. But um, look at those resources um, and, and, and keep learning. If you have questions, Robert or Will or I would be happy to talk with you about that. Um, but last week, that was the function. And, and that is important. It's important. That's why we gave a, a whole week to it. But today's sermon is more important in terms of understanding deacons because today the focus is on the character of the deacon. And that's important because your character is, it's who you are. You can serve and meet needs. You can, can, fill, you can fulfill some of the functions of deacon without having to address the deeper issues, the heart and character behind the function. But the, the scriptures require both, not just functionality, but character and functionality. So today is important because sometimes we, we can believe that someone is qualified because they can function without examining the character, and the Bible will not let us do that. And so it's important, and the reason the Bible won't let us do that, this is, this is something just to, to realize, is that when it comes to the New Testament, there's not much about the office of deacon. 
the actual office. The, the, the word servant is used, but, but often it's in a broader context. The, the, the New Testament's reference to the office of deacon is very rare, and the one place that the New Testament explicitly talks about the office of deacon is in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and this passage does not focus on function. The, the one place in the New Testament where the office of deacon is, is discussed, the focus is explicitly on the character. And so we can't ignore the character because that's the, the main focus of the New Testament when it comes to the office of deacon. So what the Bible does say, we should pay careful attention to, and the focus of the Bible is on character. So let's read 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. I'll read the, the verses, I'll pray, and then we'll work through um, the, the character of deacons. So beginning in verse 8 of 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes to Timothy, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. Let, let's pray together before we walk through these, these verses. Father, as we consider this, this passage, as we consider the office of deacon and, and the qualifications that you've laid out, would you give us a sense of awe and respect for this office that you have set apart to serve your body, for the great privilege that a deacon has. So, so would you give us a high view of the office, but also would you give us a realistic view that, that these qualifications are, are pretty unspectacular. They're, they're faithful Christian characteristics. And so would you help us to think rightly about this office, specifically as it relates to the character of those who would serve the body in this way. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the, the, there's three points we're going to walk through here as, as we try and understand the character of deacons and, and who the Bible requires them to be. First, we're going to see the, the context of these qualifications. So we'll just say a few words about 1 Timothy chapter 3. Um, but then, then second point, we'll look at the substance of the qualifications. So we'll walk through verses 8 through 13, what we just read, and, and what Paul says there. And then finally, the application of deacon qualifications. So, so what, what ought you to do in response to to this sermon and the, this, these actually two sermons. And so it'll be the, the application of, of this. So first start with the deacon qualifications and, and its context. And so First Timothy, if, if you're unfamiliar, it's one of three New Testament letters that are collectively called the, the pastoral epistles. And so these three letters, it's First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus, that they're letters written from Paul to two, two young men that, that, that he has mentored. It's, it's to Timothy and to Titus. And there's a lot of overlap in these letters. So, so Paul's writing to them in, in specific context, and, and he's giving them instructions on how to organize the church. And so they're written to individuals, to Timothy and to Titus, but the specific purpose of these letters is for Timothy and Titus to then use them in the context of the churches where they serve, whether it's Timothy in Ephesus and it's Titus who's, who's on the island of Crete. 
And so, so they're written, they're, they're, these letters are written to them so that they might learn and know how to conduct church life. Now, they're not church manuals or a manual on church order as we may think of today, but they are letters with very specific instructions on how a church should be organized and gathered. In fact, if you were to look down at verses 14 and 15 of 1 Timothy 3 that we just read, Paul says, beginning in verse 14, he says, Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so Paul's writing specifically 1 Timothy to communicate to him and the Christians how they ought to or how they must behave in the church, what's required of them. And so it's their behavior within the context of the local church that Paul is writing to instruct them in. And and notice he calls the church a pillar and buttress of truth. That's the church that Paul's saying it's important and how you organize yourselves because of the significance of this place, this church, this pillar and buttress of truth. And so, so as, as we understand the, the, the pastoral epistles, specifically 1 Timothy, we recognize that they were given to a specific local church for the purpose of instructing Timothy and their leaders and the Christians there on how to organize not just a, a random organization or, or a random uh, association, but God's church. These are instructions on how to organize God's church, the church of the living God. And so, so we ought to heed these instructions because the church is not just, just another organization. This is God's church, the church of the living God. So we ought to take seriously how we organize ourselves. And so that's why Paul is writing to Timothy. But then the smaller context, specifically within 1 Timothy 3, if you, if you just look up from verse 8 above, there's a section, verses 1 through 7, where Paul lays out other qualifications. And so verses 1 through 7 of chapter 3 are the qualifications for that of overseer or elder or pastor or shepherd. These are the qualifications for the first office. And then Paul lays out verses 1 through 7. Here's the qualifications for elders and then seamlessly moves to the qualifications for deacons to follow, which tells us, uh, uh, among several things, it tells us mainly that Paul understands these are two distinct offices. Here's qualifications for elders. Here's qualifications for deacons. They're two separate offices. They're not the same office. And so there's two offices. And while there's some overlap in the qualifications, they are two different offices. And the one thing to note, and I don't think I'll say anything more about this, but the one clear distinction between these two offices, the one that separates one from the other, the elder from the deacon, is that for the elder, there is a mention, a qualification of the ability to teach to instruct, to, to have a clear grasp of God's Word, to be able to instruct others. And that's because of the function of the elder. There's an authority, there's a spiritual authority in instructing and teaching and guarding against false truth or, or false teaching. So, so that's the one difference that, 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 that is most distinct between the office of elder and deacon. There's an implied authority with the elder. There's an authority to instruct and to teach and to guard and to rebuke. But that's not, the, the implied authority is not there with that of deacon. There's, there's authority in the, in the general sense of organizational authority. Deacons will serve and will organize servants to, to meet needs, but there's not this spiritual authority that is present with the elder, which is one of the reasons why as we come, come to one of the qualifications, this is why I, I don't understand or our church does not believe that women are prohibited from the office of deacon. 
Because the, the prohibition in Scripture is that of authority. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. That's the office of elder. There's spiritual authority that men only can be pastors. That's, that's what the New Testament teaches. That's not my idea. But the office of deacon, as we'll see, we'll work through it. Stick with me, but, but there's not that implicit authority. It's a servant. It's a, a nature of, of meeting the needs of the church, and so there's not the same authority, which is one of the reasons I don't think that the New Testament prohibits women from serving as deacons. We'll say more about that. If you want to turn me off, just please stick around. Okay, stick around. We'll, we'll get to it. But let's look at, let's look at the substance of the qualifications. Look there at verses 8 through 13. So again, this is the only place in the New Testament where the, the, the character qualifications of deacons are mentioned. Nothing about skills or talents, but the focus is squarely on who the deacon must be. So look there, verse 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So here's this first section in, in these, these qualifications. And again, what we ought to notice is that this, these qualifications are, are, ought to be met by the mature Christian. Now, these are not spectacular qualifications. These are not super Christian qualifications. These are qualifications that, that the normal mature Christian should display. So, so one of the spectacular things is how unspectacular they are. They, they're just qualifications that, that most Christians should be aiming for. And so, so here is Paul laying out these qualifications. And again, we ought, we ought to recognize that, that this dignified, the very first qualification is, is the deacon must be dignified, must be above reproach, which again, this, the difference between the office is, is gifting and calling, not character. So it, it, this, this deacon position is filled by one who's, who's gifted and called. It's not as though the elder has spiritual qualifications and the deacon doesn't. No, the character, there's overlap in both these offices because the mature Christian is called to fill the offices of the church. It's how has God gifted you or called you to serve the church. And whether he's called you one or the other, you ought to pursue spiritual maturity in these ways. You, you, you cannot sit back and say, well, I'm not, I'm not called to be a deacon, therefore I don't have to be dignified or I can be double-tongued or I can be addicted to much wine. It doesn't work that way. And th- these, are, these are qualities that the Christian should ascribe to. And the character... Is, is the standard that the entire church should aspire to, regardless of function. It's, it's, it's the Christian life. So for, I mentioned dignified. This, this word means honorable or respectable, esteemed, or even it could be used to, to mean worthy. And it's, this is a qualification because it's central to the work and service of a deacon. A deacon who's not dignified or respected by those who they're called to serve is someone who's not fit to lead the church in this way, to meet the needs in this way. This office must be respected. It's similar to the first qualific- one of the first qualifications given to the elders, which is respectable. This is the call, dignified. It's part of who this person is and how they function in the church. It's, it's, it's who they are. The, the, the church can look at the deacon and say, that is someone I respect. Same is true of the elder. But it's dignified. That's the first one. But then Paul lists all the, these three negative qualifications. So, so notice the first negative he mentions. I think, that, I think this, is, uh, this is significant. The very first, he says, must be dignified. Then the very next thing is the deacon must not be double-tongued. Double-tongued. This doesn't mean have two tongues, 
And that's, that's not literally two tongues, but what this phrase literally means is the deacon must not be someone who says something twice. Double tongue to, 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 to kind of speak out of the both, both sides of their mouth. One, one author explains it this way. He says, people who are double tongued say one thing to certain people, but something else to others. Or they, they say one thing, but actually mean another. They are two-faced and insincere. The double-tongued person, their words cannot be trusted, and thus they lack credibility. Deacons thus must be of the type of people who are careful with their tongues, not saying what they should not, being faithful to the truth in their speech. They cannot be slippery with their words, seeking to manipulate situations for their own personal good. The deacon must not be like this. If you think about the, the function of deacon in meeting practical needs, it's really easy for someone with a double-tongued to, to, to manipulate circumstances. Someone comes with a complaint. Oh, I totally agree with you, but the elders, they don't agree. So we're just going to have, it's okay, just, it's okay, but the elders, are, you, they, they, don't, they don't agree with you. Or someone says, hey, this person needs help financially, and, and the deacon can say, oh, well, bless their heart, I will put them on my prayer list. And they go home, and then, did you know this person's struggling this will destroy the ability of a deacon to serve the church. And it's not surprising, therefore, that Paul would mention this specific qualification when it comes to deacons. I mean, in other places in the New Testament, there is no lack of clarity when it comes to the warnings against the sin of gossip. Gossip destroys the church. So it makes sense that when it comes to an officer of the church, the sins of the tongue would be singled out at the very beginning. The deacon must not be double-tongued. There's no way for someone who, who has this character trait to protect and preserve the unity of the church. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The double-tongued person only divides and fractures the church. Thus, Paul says, this must not be the character of the person who serves as deacon. But he continues, there's, a, there's another negative, not addicted to much wine, which again, we, we develop, begin to develop a theme of, of self-control in the life of the deacon, must control his or her tongue, but also must control the, 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 the desire or the appetite. The deacon must not be addicted to much wine. And again, if you think about the, the function of a deacon, a, a deacon who is perpetually inebriated could not be mentally there to meet the needs of the church when called on, at whenever the need is. It shows a lack of self-control. I do think we should note it. It says, must not be addicted to much wine. It doesn't say must not drink wine, but not to be addicted to much wine. Someone addicted to wine would clearly be prohibited from, from serving the body in this way. And in fact, just to be clear, someone who is addicted to much wine is also a Christian who should be rebuked for their sin. Because drunkenness is a sin, and if someone is perpetually pursuing drunkenness, if someone is, is, is drunk all the time because of their addiction to wine, we as Christians ought to speak into the life of our brother and sister because that's sin. And so again, just because this is a, a qualification for a deacon doesn't mean that the, the Christian who's not serving the office of deacon can pursue these at, at whatever, however they want. Must not be double-tongued or addicted to much wine. Then the third and final negative is not greedy for dishonest gain. And so, in fact, if you, if you look back and you study the, the early church, the, the deacons, one of the primary functions was, was the collection of the offering and the distribution of the offering. 
And so the deacons were, were responsible with that and throughout history have been. And in fact, at our church, the, the deacons, when I first got here, it was the benevolence was one of the things the deacons were in charge of because the, the finances of the church were often controlled by the deacons, specifically the benevolence. Which is why Paul would say in verse 8, not greedy for dishonest gain. Remember Judas. Judas was dishonest for greedy gain and he betrayed his Savior for 30 pieces of silver. But, but this is not uh, uh, something that the, the deacon... Could, could fall prey to. They, they must not be greedy for dishonest gain. It'd be easy to take advantage of the benevolent giving of the church. And so Paul says this must not be a temptation. This, this must not be the character of this person. When he continues with now positive qualifications, verse 9, so there's the three negatives, and then verse 9, must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, again, the, the office of deacon, if it's simply serving, it would be easy to think, well, they, they don't have to know anything. They don't have to know theology or, or the deep things of God. They, they just serve. Well, Paul mentions this, I think, to, to combat that error. The truth of the matter is that deacons often in their function have opportunities to speak the truth and encourage others with the promises of God's word as they serve together and meet needs of the church together. So the deacons must know the mystery of the faith, the Christian faith, once for all, delivered to the saints, revealed in the coming of Christ. The, the mystery of the Christian faith that's now been revealed, the, the, the deacon must know that. Should be able to explain or defend the basic truths of, of our faith. But notice he doesn't say that they, they must know them, but they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They, they not only have to know it, they have to believe it and hold to it. In order to be a servant in the pillar of truth, God's church, theology matters. What you think about God, what, what God's word teaches is significant for you to know as you serve this body. And Paul adds that this truth must be held to with a clear conscience, which simply means that the, the walk must match the talk. So if I hold the faith and I believe it, and I know it, but yet my life lives something different. I can't hold it with a clear conscience because I believe one thing, but my life portrays another. That's not a clear conscience. So he's saying that they must be held to with a clear conscience so that what they believe is in accordance with how they live. Their life must be marked with consistency and faithfulness. One author says, it's not sufficient to have a grasp on the theological profession of the church, that knowledge must be accompanied with appropriate behavior. The deacon must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And he continues, must, verse 10, must be tested and proven blameless. This is a, a, a pretty, this lacks further clarification. The, the testing, we don't really know what that would look like. The specifics aren't laid out. But the point is that the church, to be protected uh, but against maybe installing or ordaining prematurely, the, the deacon should have a time of testing and training so, so that they, they know, then the church can get to know the deacon, the, the nominee, the person who's going to serve the body. And so I think in a lot of churches, this looks like a, a process or a timeline for testing a potential deacon. And again, this is to protect the church. Much, much like the office of elder, the office of deacon is to be occupied by someone that the church knows and that the church affirms someone that has a reputation for serving the church. I mean, one of the ways that, that we can identify deacon candidates is who's serving the church without the title. Because okay? that shows the true heart and character of someone. If, if they're serving, 
without the title. Too often people want the title before they start functioning. And that, that betrays a, an inconsistency at best. So tested and proven blameless. Now we'll skip over verse 11. Not permanently, we'll come back to it. But, but then notice how he continues in verse 12. And the qualification shifts to the family life. So, so verse 12 there, he, he focuses on the deacons of, of husband of one wife and faithful in managing the children and households. And so the office of deacon, it's not as, hey, he's, he's a family man or she's, she's good with, with her kids, therefore that's an additional benefit of them serving as deacon. No, that's one of the qualifications is, is that the closest family relationships are, are well stewarded. A deacon, if he is a man, must be the husband of one wife. And he must be faithful in his stewardship of his children and his household. And so this is, this is, this is the, the, the qualification that, that hits the family, which again means the church should, should know these individuals. You should know how this person stewards his or her relationship with their spouse or their children. And again, the, the point of, of this, specifically the marriage qualification, and I think the same goes with elder, is that the point of these individuals being held forth as leaders in the church, as office holders, one of the main purposes is for the church to be able to say, here's individuals that are living the life that we think all Christians should live. As examples, examples to the flock. I mean, that's explicitly said of elders, but I think the same is true for deacons. And so, and so I, in the ideal situation, if, if you're a, a young Christian who's just come to faith and you're married with children, a church should be able to say, well, we have two elders who are married with children. Look at them. And that's how you should love your wife and love your children. That's how you should model repentance when you fail. Right? These are examples so that the church has living examples of what the Christian life looks like. Now, we also have the scriptures, but, but we need fleshed out in real life. What does it look like to live the Christian life? And I think that's one of the reasons we have these qualifications. And so specifically when it comes to marriage, I think that even if someone has had a divorce, I don't think that necessarily disqualifies him from serving in either of these offices. Maybe it does. Maybe it does. But I don't think it necessarily does because, again, the point is, is this person an example? Is this person faithful to his wife? The point is faithfulness. Is this person a faithful husband? Is he faithful to his one wife? And, and I, I simply would say that, that a man can earn that reputation after divorce. I think there can be decades of faithfulness so that a church could say, this is what a faithful husband looks like. If, that, if the point is faithfulness, if the point is setting an example for the church, an instance of divorce doesn't necessarily prohibit, prohibit ser, service. Maybe it does. But again, I, th- I think a, a counterpoint for the person who says, well, divorce necessarily does. Now, oftentimes, from my experience, someone who's been divorced doesn't feel called to serve in that office. And that, that's, that's a conscience thing, and, and that's fine. But if someone desires to do that, and we say, well, because you were divorced X number of years ago, you're disqualified, I think a counterpoint would be, well, what about the Apostle Paul who would, who would be charged with being a murderer who would come? When we say, well, no, your past sin disqualifies you indefinitely. If there's a, a pattern of faithfulness over a long period of time, and again, I'm talking about a pattern of faithfulness, I, I think that the, the, the point is an example. And we can talk more about that, but I think that's, that's, that's the point here, and I can, I can, I'm happy to meet with you and talk with you about that. Um, but that, that's the family life qualifications. 
of the deacon. But let's go back to verse 11, because that's, that's, that's a, the verse we definitely want to briefly hit on. We skipped over it because this is uh, the, the pen- potentially controversial verse. Look back at verse 11. If you read the ESV, it says, quote, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. And so here we have Paul laying out the qualifications for deacons. And in verse 11, the, the ESV translates their wives. Now, as we read that, it seems pretty clear to us that he's talking about deacons' wives, right? That, that's the way that that word is translated, their wives. Verse 11 seems to be the flow of thought that Paul says, here's the qualifications for deacons, then here's how there's qualification for their wives, and then verse 12, we go back to the deacon family lives. And so, so that, that's how people will often read this verse, and I think that's, a, uh, that, that's an acceptable understanding here. But the problem is, verse 11, the Greek word used there, in the midst of this chapter devoted to, to qualifications for church office, this verse, that's, this verse, specifically 11, listing qualifications, simply refers to this group of people as gynekos, gynekos, which is simply the word women. It could be translated wives, but it's, it's literally the Greek word for woman. And so here's a group of women. And so the ESV makes the translation decision, says it's, it's referring to their wives, so it adds their to it and, say, and translates it wives. But it could equally be understood as, likewise, women must be dignified. And so the decision, really the crux of if you believe that women can or cannot serve as deacons, comes from how you interpret that one Greek word. And the context I think makes good arguments on both sides. Is Paul talking about deacons' wives, or is he talking about women, which would then be, well, it's women deacons, because that's the context. He's talking about qualifications for deacons. And so I just, I just want to give you good evidence for both readings, so you know it's not a cut-and-dry case, right? I think there's good evidence on both sides. And again, so hopefully you're following. Verse 11, how is that word translated? So, so if you, here's reasons why it should be translated wives, as it is in the ESV. If Paul means female deacons, why did he use the word women? Why not say likewise deacons or women deacons? Right? There, there's a feminine form of deacon that he could use there. Okay, if he was talking about female deacons, he could use that word. Another argument in favor of wives, there's only four qualifications listed there. If he's talking about an, an office of female deacon, it seems like there need to be more qualifications. It seems like that's just an addendum to deacons, the larger deacon qualifications he's talking about. Another argument for reading it as wives, the shift back to deacons in verse 12 seems to flow in order. Here's deacon qualifications, here's qualifications for their wives, and here's their marital and family lives. It seems to flow, if you understand it, as talking about their, their wives as, as a little addendum or, or a parenthesis there in talking about deacons. Another argument in favor of reading wives would be because of the nature of diaconal ministry, of serving it often accompanies a husband and his wife. So it would be helpful or beneficial or necessary for Paul to say, if you're called to serve as a deacon and you're a man, your wife should also be able to serve with you in this ministry. So those are all reasons in favor of why it should be wives, which then if it's wives, then, then the, the implication would be women should not serve as deacons. Again, those are good. Those are strong arguments. And if I've done my job well, you're like, yeah, of course. Why do you even believe that, that women should be deacons? Well, let me tell you why the argument's in favor of understanding it to be women. One of, the, one of the strongest is the word likewise. So in this context, verse 8, when he says deacons likewise, 
He's just talked about elders, and the word likewise seems to, to key off to here's another group. Deacons likewise must be. Well, then verse 11, their wives or women likewise, right? It seems to key off on another, another category of leaders. And then going back to verse 12 would be the transition back to the, the male deacons of verse 8. Another reason why I think it could be read or should be read women would be why would the office of elder not have any qualifications for their wives? Why would it be elders, here's your qualifications, nothing said about wives, and then deacons, here's your qualifications, and here's qualifications for your wives? It seems as though the elder, right, as, as those leading the body, their, their relationship with their wives and their wives should have qualifications if he was focused on the wives of the office holders, which again, I don't think he is. I think he's talking about women. Another reason, and this is probably the strongest, the pronoun there that is added in verse 11 is not in the original. Paul could have said, their women or their wives, but the pronoun's not there. If he was referring to theirs, their wives, the wives of deacons, he could have used that pronoun. He didn't. He just said women likewise. And so I think that's, that's reason to take it to be women and not wives of deacons. Now again, there, there's more evidence. I think, I think Romans 16.1 and Phoebe is, is a pretty strong example. She's referred to as a, as a servant, deacon of a specific church. And the word there, deacon, and, and you can look, look this up later, but Romans 16.1 is another reason. And then as I mentioned earlier, the office of deacon does not have, uh, it does not have spiritual authority it is a, a call to serve the body, which I think would, would be fitting for a male or a female. Again, in my mind, the issue is clear, but I still want to hold it loosely because there are brothers and sisters who disagree. But I agree with those who believe the function of a deacon doesn't prohibit a woman's full participation in it. And that is the position of our church according to our Constitution bylaws. We believe that being an elder requires one to be a male. That's our convention's clear statement. Though it's not the sole qualification, make, make sure you understand that. Just because you're a man doesn't mean you're qualified to be a pastor. Right? That's one of them, but not the only one. Um, there are many men who are not qualified. But we believe the second office, office of deacon, that could be filled by men and women. If you have questions about that, again, we're happy to talk with you. There's resources that all the resources do a good job of just laying out what, is, what, what the arguments in favor of and against are. And we can, I'm happy to talk with you. Will is, Robert is, we, we can, we, we're happy to set aside time. To talk, but our final point, and this is the, our closing. What 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 is what can you do? So, as members of Fox Hill Road Baptist Church, how ought you apply these specific qualifications? And then, at large, the that are, are moving forward. How do you proceed with the deacon process? Well, here here's here's four things to do. First, pray. Pray. There's great need to ask God to raise up deacons in our body. So so pray. Pray that God would, would make clear who ought to serve our body in this way. You, you know, have function, you know, have character. And so pray and ask God to, to make clear to you who you might recommend to serve in this way. Pray for individuals to be called and serve the body in this way. Pray that as a body we might recognize and have wisdom and discernment in knowing who to appoint to this office. Pray that individuals, once appointed, might serve this body well. Right? There, there are many things that we could be praying for, but we ought to be praying that this office is filled, that there are individuals who are appointed and recognize their calling, and us as a church recognize God's calling 
and, and, and anoint them or ordain them for service. So, so pray. Second, I'd say look. Look. Look around. Look around. I mean, not right now, but look around. Are, who are individuals, especially in light of these character, character qualifications, look around. Who are individuals that you think meet these qualifications? We, we already, we received some recommendations from, from some of you, but, but we, want, we want to give you as a church body more time in light of what we've, we've studied these past two weeks. And so, so look for men and women that you think could serve the body. We as a church have set apart specific offices of deacon, but, but that, don't get caught up in that. If you see someone that meets these needs, recommend them. Say, this person, in light of all that I've said, in light of all that you, you've studied, I think this person ought to be a deacon in this church body. Look around. If you think someone might be a good candidate, talk to them. Get to know them. Right? Ask them if they've ever considered serving as a deacon. I know because we had a, an influx of, of new members or, or new people over the past year or two, there are probably a handful of people you don't know really well. Get to know them. Get to know them and, and see if they might be someone that God would call to be a deacon. Thirdly, act. Act. As you get to know people, as, you, as people come to mind, if you're convinced that a specific person ought to be considered for the office of deacon, let us know. Let the elders know. We're going to have forms. Uh, next week, we'll try to have these forms, the recommendation forms. You can fill one out, but, but you can also just let us know. And, and we're going to take the recommendations and then proceed with the process of training and testing. But, but we need the individuals that, that you as a church recognize and say, we think this person ought to be a servant of this body. And so act, so recommend people. Again, whether the former, whether you just talk to us, send us an email, send us a text message. Don't assume that someone else is going to recommend the person you think. You do it. You act. You take action. And again, we'll, we'll take the recommendations and we'll, we'll begin the process of training and testing. And at the end of that process, we'll put forward nominations for you, the church, to affirm. But the start of the process is you acting. And on a side note, you're always, you always ought to be evaluating if there are elder candidates that you'd want to recommend also. We are always in need of more elders. Again, these offices, these officers are gifts of God to the church. And so we always ought to have our eyes open. Who is God gifted to serve our body in this way? And while we're focusing on deacons, if there are men that you see eldering, displaying the qualities of, of a shepherd, overseer, if there are individuals that you see, we are always open to receiving recommendations for elders also. The, the more called pastors of the body, the better it is for the sheep. And so all, we're always receiving recommendations for elders also. But then the, fact, the last thing for you to do is trust. Finally, trust the Lord with this process recognize that elders and deacons are gifts from Christ to his church, and Christ will not leave his church in need. He will provide for us. And so our trust is in him. Our hope is in him. I know that we've been without deacons for almost two years, and it's been too long. I know that. It's been too long. But in looking back, I can rejoice that our needs have continued to be met. Can you recognize that? We, we've still had our needs met. There have been people who have stepped up and fulfilled the needs by unofficial deacons, those who've served the church without title. So we can rejoice in that, but we also can look forward and rejoice knowing that God will give us what we need. He will provide us, this local body, with the individuals that he sees fit to serve and care for us. And so we look forward trusting him.
walking by faith as we seek to honor him at this time in this place. Let me pray for us, and then we will we'll close by singing.